Chapter 13 of The Romance of Plant Life. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Eva Stays. The Romance of Plant Life by George Francis Scott Eliot. Chapter 13 Rocks, Stones, and Scenery. An old wall. Beautiful colors. Insects. Nature's chief aim. Hard times of lichens. Age of lichens. Crusts. Mosses. Lava flows of great eruptions. Colonizing plants. Krakatoa. Greenland volcanoes. Sumatra. Shale heaps. Foreigners on railway lines. Plants keep to their own grounds. Precipices and rocks. Plants which change the scenery. Canyons in America. At first sight, and when one is striding along at some four miles an hour, there seems to be nothing at all interesting in an old wall. But if one stops and carefully examines the stones, there is a great deal that is interesting. Rocks and walls possess a fascination of their own. Probably at least 2,000 British plants are only found upon them, and yet of these the vast majority are so small and inconspicuous that an ordinary person never perceives a single one of them. It is perhaps on rocks or old walls near the sea that this stone flora is most richly developed. The near-circular orange-yellow patches of the lichen Physica parentina are quite distinct and conspicuous. But any old wall, provided as well out in the country, is pretty sure to be interesting. At first it seems to have only a dull gray or neutral tint, but if one goes four or five feet distance, one discovers that many shades of browns, red, white, and black go to make this gray. But the extraordinary beauty of such a wall is only visible when one peers and scrutinizes the surface very slowly and carefully, with the eyes six or seven inches away from it. In doing this, one is often troubled by rude and ribald boys. A botanical friend in need complained that he had been, for months, avoided and shunned as a dangerous wandering lunatic on account of his botanical enthusiasm. But true botanists get accustomed to disagreeable incidents like that, and pay no attention to the vulgar crowd. The change in an old wall, when one looks at it from a few inches distance, is most remarkable. The entire surface is spotted or dusted, sprinkled, or entirely covered by thick lichen stains and crusts. The original color of the stone is nowhere visible. The lichens show the most delicate shades and contrasts in colors, all pleasing and all blending together in harmonious general tones. The fruit of these lichens is like a minute saucer or platter, generally with a thin rim or border, but it is exceedingly small, probably only one sixteenth of an inch in diameter, or even less. The smallest of these crust lichens form continuous, very thin, coatings covering the stone and against this background the little saucer-like fruits show up quite distinctly the coating itself varies from bright yellow pale ochre citron chestnut color 
to mouse color, different shades of gray and green, cream color, lead color, blue-black or pure black, tawny brown, rusty red, or pure white. The cups of one kind, Lacedia, or black, while those of Lacanora are generally reddish-brown, but they may be a ghostly pale hue which stands out plainly against the gray-green background of the frond. Sometimes they are of the richest deep crimson or lake, set against a pure snow-white crust, those of Lacanora, Fitalina, are, though tiny, a brilliant yellow, and quite startling when first one notices them. Many of these contrasts and shades are never used by artists, and even from the mere artistic point of view they have great interest. But if, after spending a few minutes in carefully looking over the rocks at a distance of six or seven inches, one stands up and goes back to four or five feet away, the whole of this color scheme fades away, and there is only the monotonous and determinate gray or neutral tint of the wall. Now, why is this? Why should these delicate and exquisite shades be wasted on such a minute and scarcely distinguishable forms? There are always two sides from which one can look at any subject, namely the inside and the outside. From the inside, that is, from the point of view of the little lichen itself, these colors are decidedly useful. Small insects crawl about on such walls or hover a few inches in front of them, and to those insects these cups will be as conspicuous and attractive as a scarlet geranium is to ourselves. Just as we habitually go to look at a geranium, so those insects fly towards the cups and crawl about on them. Then, when the spores and dust of the lichen begin to stick in their hairs and feet, they go to a bare place and clean or brush them off. Thus the spores and dust are carried to a new part of the rock, where they will grow if they can find an unoccupied space. The taste and color of these insects, moreover, is apparently not very different from that of man. But perhaps a still more interesting point of view is that from the outside. Why are those lichens there? What are they doing? And are they of any use? The general scheme of nature is to cover the whole world with green, so that every ray of sunlight may find a working leaf or a green frond ready to welcome it and use it. Nature abhors bare rock, barren sand, and empty water, and never ceases to try to bring it under that beautiful covering of green plants and active vegetable life, which supports both man and animals. We all know that there is a romance in the story of man's colonies. First, the explorers search out the country, then the pioneer frontiersman settles and builds his log hut or rough shanty. Next come the frontier village, which may, perhaps, in many years' time, become a crowded city where active, valuable work is carried on. The story of the colonizing of rocks and stones by plants is just as vividly interesting. These tiny lichens are most the first pioneers and prepare the ground for those that follow. Upon that bare rock, life is terribly severe. The frost shatters it. Sunshine heats it until it almost burns the hand in the summer. Floods of rain or of sleet beat against it, and it may be frozen over for weeks. What plants can stand such conditions? Only these minute, tiny, scarcely visible lichen films. Gradually, new lichen crusts develop upon it. They cover over the first pioneers. First, they suffocate them, and afterwards devour their remains. 
Nature is very businesslike and severe in her working. The lichen crust may be now about one sixteenth of an inch thick. It is a very slow process. There is a story of a boy who noticed a patch of lichen near his father's door. He went away to Kamishakta, or somewhere, and came back to a very old man of eighty-five years. But he found that the lichen patch was just the same size as when he went away. That, however, is just a story. At any rate, one of these little crust-like lichens, called variolaria, has been known to increase half a millimeter in size, about a sixteenth part of an inch, between the end of February and that of September. Now, if one tries to realize what the life of such a lichen crust or crottle must be, it is obvious that the stone below it must be a little corroded or weathered, and remains of the first choked pioneers, bacteria, and possibly tiny insects or animacula will be under the crust, which may now be one-sixteenth of an inch thick. It is the turn now of other lichens to colonize it. These may be the little trumpet or horn and comp lichens, clendonias, or perhaps the larger gray kind, parmelias and physicas, which have leaf-like fronds and form circles of perhaps 8 to 10 inches in diameter. The crust lichen is overgrown, broken up, disorganized, and devoured by the parmelias and the clendonias, who are helped by bacteria, insects, and macula, which shelter below them. These leafy lichens grow much more rapidly. They may increase two-thirds of an inch in one year. But very soon after this, one notices a very inconspicuous green mosses. At first, in the crevices between the stones, or in the hollows, and not remarkable, they soon increase and form trailing sprays or branches which grow very quickly. Branches of moss four or five inches long extend over the leafy lichens in a season. The parmelias and clendonias struggle on, but they cannot keep pace with the rapid life of the moss, and soon our wall is covered by beautiful moss turfs. Underneath such a turf, there may be an inch or so of good soil, dead moss and dust with lichens and insect bodies, worms, insects, etc., shelter and flourish and multiply in the soil. But the turn of the moss is coming, here a few grass blades, there a tiny plant of sandwort, Possibly a rock bed straw began to root themselves in the moss. If people would only let the wall alone, it would soon be festooned with hanging plants and producing quantities of grass, but somebody is sure to find that it looks very untidy and everything is torn off the wall, which again looks new and raw and clean. Then, of course, the pioneer lichens begin again. Some very interesting and remarkable facts have been discovered about the ways in which lavas and basalts have been occupied by the plant world. In the great volcanic eruption of 1883, the whole island of Krakatoa was covered by hot lava and glowing ashes. In 1884 and 1885, the sunsets were remarkable for a curious fiery red or orange glow, which was popularly supposed to be due to the volcanic dust of that explosion. It is said that the dust traveled three times round the earth, though I do not know on what authority. However, on Krakatoa Island there was left a clean slate. There was neither bacteria nor leaf mold nor living plants of any kind, nor spores or seeds could have endured the fiery furnace of their interruption. Three years afterwards, the botanist Terub visited the island. He found that the rocks had been first covered by thin layers of minute freshwater algae, but that 
ferns were then occupying and inhabiting the lavas eleven kinds of ferns and but very few other plants were discovered people were interested in this and dr a f w schimper then visited another volcano which had been pouring out huge streams of lava in eighteen forty three he found that there were still plenty of ferns but also a number of shrubs and other plants yet even then there were no trees and there was no continuous mantle of green plants such as we are accustomed to in this country he also found many plants growing on the lava which are generally found on the branches of trees that is which can do without a thick layer of soil he also found quantities of a pitcher plant nepenthes which live mainly on insects caught in its pitchers this does not at first seem to agree at all with what has been given for the walls this does not at first sight seem to agree at all with what has been given for the walls it is true that sometimes in the highlands or lowlands and lakeland hills one may come across quantities of bladder fern and other growing on the screes these last may be described as streams of broken angular stones filling small gullies and spreading out at a base over a considerable space often these ferns seem to be all that can thrive in it amongst the stones but in a mild and temperate country like our own one would expect things to proceed differently and in fact they do so every one must have noticed a green stain which covers wet walls stones stucco even marble statues and especially tree bark in wet or damp situations this is a minute green seaweed rejoicing in the name of pleurococcus it is a pretty object for the microscope this of course is the first stage of colonization it is followed by mosses of sorts but there is a more interesting series still in a climate resembling our own the lava flows from mount vesuvius have been investigated by several observers there it was found that the first inhabitants were lichens and small green seaweeds then different mosses occupied the lava over which a certain quantity of vegetable dust had been scattered after this scattered ferns and even small shrubs could be seen even on flows which were red hot only twenty years before whilst on old lava fields herbs shrubs bushes trees and even true woods had developed yet in greenland lava flows dating from seventeen twenty four to twenty nine are still only covered by crust lichens and a very few of the stone mosses in sumatra on the other hand the volcano tamburo which in eighteen fifty had entirely destroyed its vegetation was covered with a fine young wood in eighteen seventy four the strong heat and abundant moisture of sumatra favors whilst the horrible climate of greenland prevents the rapid growth of good soil just as cities of twenty thousand inhabitants can spring up in a few months in western united states whilst the eskimo of greenland have not managed as yet even to live in villages the full beauty of this gradual colonization and occupation of bare rock and stone only impresses one properly if one tries to trace the stages but it is an interesting history near glasgow one sees great heaps of shale or bays generally black band which are often mistaken for natural hills this is or was virgin soil never occupied by plants and entirely destitute of leaf mold or any sort of organic plant food if one scrambles to the top of these heaps it is easy to see all the details of the occupation 
long underground runners of colt's foot and of horsetail are climbing up the sides fringes of creeping buttercup couch grass and other hardy weeds occupy every year a little more of the flanks but on the top one very soon finds that the dust of the atmosphere aided by weathering has afforded a chance to mosses to hawkweeds and other rock plants these in time cover the top and soon hardy grasses and weeds form a regular turf on the top of the shale it is interesting to scramble to the top of one of these heaps especially in summer one then begins to realize how every plant attends strictly to its own business all over the sides of the heap there will be hundreds of a rare groundsel, Seneca viscus, which is not really a native, and never occurs except on such places, and in grass field close by hundreds of thousands of ragwort, Seneca jacobia, make a glorious golden carpet. In the marshy parts of the meadow, the water ragwort, Seneca aquitus, may be found. In the cottage gardens, and here and there along the roadside, the groundsel, cynical vulgaris, is flourishing abundantly. These plants never interfere with or encroach upon one another's grounds. Every year, thousands of ragweed and groundsel seeds must be blown on to the shale heap, but they never manage to grow there. It is only the foreigner, species viscous, accustomed to a very hot and dry climate with sticky leaves which catch atmospheric dust and probably insects, can exist on the bare shaly sides. These slopes of shale are easily heated by the sun, and at the same time radiate the heat rapidly away, so that the viscid groundsel must have a very hard time of it. When its roots have worked up the shale a little, and its dead leaves have covered the surface with the mold and organic matter, then possibly others, true British plants, can get a footing and suppress it. Along railway tracks also, the ballast forms a very hot, a very dry, and a very barren soil. Many of the regular railway track plants are foreigners from the far south, even from the sunny shores of the Mediterranean. They are mostly annuals, such as the little toad flax, Linaria minor, which can just manage to exist under those conditions. Of course, the size of the banks and the cuttings on the railways are generally formed of good earth or soil and support a rich and flourishing flora of true Britons. Besides these slow, laborious lichens, mosses, and others which have attacked rock, there are other plants which are generally called rock plants, though they behave quite differently. These are those fine, hardy hawkweeds, rose roots, semper viviums, mew, and others which establish their roots in cracks or crevices of the rocks. Such cracks are soon full of good soil, for the wind blows decayed leaves and dust into them, and the roots are always burrowing into, eating into, and shattering the rocks. Most of them have a circle of leaves which are pressed flat into the ground, thus they escape the violent winds and storms always common on such crags and precipices. The flowers, however, supported on tough, strong, and flexible stalks, sway freely to and fro in the wind, and can be seen by insects a long way off. These rocks are of some importance as stone-breakers and pioneers in a very interesting process. Wherever a cliff or precipice of stone is exposed, it is weathered. Water gets into cracks and freezes in the winter, but when water is frozen, it expands or widens, and as this happens to the water in the crevices and cracks of rocks, pieces of rocks are shivered and broken off. 
Besides frost and wind and rain, these rock plants help to attack the cliff. Their roots get into the crevices, and they are widened and expand, tearing off great slabs and splinters of rock, which fall down to the foot of the cliff. Down below, plants are every year growing over and covering up or happing up with green, these bare fragments and splinters. A considerable amount falls down every year, so that the ground is always being raised up below the precipice, and the brow or the edge above the precipice, there is also always a loss of rock and stone every year, so that every year the bare rock exposed becomes smaller and smaller, until eventually a steep, green, grass-covered slope covers over the entire site of that precipice. Moreover, that is not by any means all the plants do in the way of changing the scenery of the country. Look at the outlines of the hills in any part of Great Britain, except in the broken, jagged, rocky mountain ranges of Scotland and Wales, also Cumberland, Westmoreland, parts of Derbyshire, and Dartmoor Tours. Everywhere there are smooth, flowing, and gently undulating rises and falls. No sharp, abrupt descents break these graceful, sweeping curves. If you compare the scenery of a canyon in the rainless deserts of West America, the contrast is very striking. There the sides of the valleys are steep cliffs. It is all harsh, precipitous, horrible country, which is obviously very unpleasant and very attractive to civilized people. It is this green covering of plants which make the difference. The rain that falls is not allowed to cut out the ragged ravines. It is intercepted and soaks into the grasses, which so keep a smooth, gentle outline over hill and valley. If you notice the effect of a heavy shower of rain on a road or bare earth, you will see how soon tiny valleys and canyons and beds of streamlets are cut out. But on the green fields beside the road, there is no change in the surface at all. It seems to be quite unaffected by the heaviest of storms of rain. End of chapter 13